0: Hi there everybody, welcome back to Hits 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Lizzie, all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century, from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, you can you can find us over on Twitter, we are at Hits21UK, that is at Hits21UK, and you can email us too, just send it on over to Hits21Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you so much for joining us again, we are currently looking back at the year 2005, our second episode of that year, this week we are going to be covering the period between the 23rd of January and the 12th of February in that year. Not many, uh, not many number one singles lasting for a very long time at this point in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, last week's poll winner was Jailhouse Rock, proving that <laughs> pop from the fifties survived into the 21st century fairly well. So yeah, it well wasn't done to tough Elvis. competition, to be fair. I mean,
1: well no. done to Elvis, but he was fighting against Steve Brookstein and himself. So you
0: know. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> Andy, before we get going, you have something you'd like to share with us. Yeah, just a bit of shameless self-promotion
1: before we get started. Um, Presumably, the listeners of our show are fans of marathoning through the chronology of pop music history. If you're not, then this might be the wrong place for you to be. But, therefore, I, I just wanted to mention the launch of a new podcast, which myself and my very good friend Jay, should have hopefully launched by the time this episode goes live, uh, called Now That's What I Call Musings, which, as you may have gathered, is (laughs) going to be uh, musing on every single Now album, the UK Now That's What I Call Music catalogue. We're going to be going through each one of them, um, sort of picking out our highlights, our lowlights, and some rediscovered spotlight songs that kind of have been forgotten by history but are preserved on Now albums. Uh, that's going to be launching as I say by the time you hear this it'll be available on Spotify on Apple Music on wherever you get your podcasts and yeah give us a listen give us a go tell your friends it's really good I hope but I'll let you be the judge of whether it's really good but it is yeah so that's now that what I call musings
0: which is launching over the weekend so please do enjoy yeah cool thank you very much for letting us know I will also be tuning into that Um, me too so On to this week's episode, and as always, we're going to give you some news headlines, uh, this time from January and February 2005. Christopher Pearson, a 40-year-old man from London, is jailed for six months after sending emails to the families of people missing after the Boxing Day tsunami, saying that their relatives were confirmed dead, when they weren't. Pearson, who had recently lost his own son at the time, had pretended to be from the Foreign Office when sending the emails. Chris Smith, who was Tony Blair's Culture Secretary
1: from 1997 to 2001, reveals that he has been HIV positive for 17 years. Smith was the first openly gay male British MP, having revealed his sexuality in 1984. He is currently Master of Pembroke College in Cambridge.
2: And in the US, video sharing website YouTube officially goes online. It would be another two months before the first video would be posted though. That first video was called Me at the Zoo" and was uploaded by founder Jawad Karim and can still be found on the website today where it has 284 million views at the time of recording this. Um, at the top
0: of the UK box office it's still meet the fuckers for the duration of this episode. But, on question time, a member of the audience uses the final question of the night to propose to his girlfriend, who, thank God, said yes. (laughs) Christ, blimey. (sighs) Uh. EastEnders celebrates its
1: 20th anniversary on the air with a special episode that depicts the murder of Dan Watts, better known as Dirty Dan, played by Leslie Grantham. Over 14 million people, including me and my sister, watched the episode, which meant that it finished the year as the second most watched TV broadcast of the year.
2: The most watched TV broadcast in the UK belongs to an episode of Coronation Street that aired three days later, when 14.5 million people watched Martin Platt break up with Katie Harris. And in wrestling, Dave Batista wins the 2005 Royal Rumble match after eliminating the other last man standing, John Cena. But it, that's big underselling names? the... Yeah, it's, it's kind of underselling the story a little bit, though, because this is quite a famous fuck-up in wrestling history. You see, what was supposed to happen was Dave Batista was supposed to eliminate John Cena and go on to the main event of WrestleMania, which he did but only after the match was restarted. See, what happened was, they did a spot where Batista had John Cena ready for a powerbomb and they went into a corner, and what was supposed to happen was, as far as I know, Dave Batista was supposed to just kind of launch him out. Problem is, he went over the rope at the same time as Cena, and they both hit the floor at the same time, which meant that technically neither of them won. So, In the midst of all this confusion, you had like two referees, like both in the ring, like one raising one hand, one raising the other hand. Nobody in the crowd knows what's going on. Nobody on commentary knows what's going on. And to cap it all off, uh, the chairman of the company, Vince McMahon, charges down to the ring. At this point, he is beat red. He throws off his suit jacket, marches down to the ring. And as soon as he gets in the ring, his legs just give way. <laughs> like they just turned to jelly. So what has actually happened here is he has somehow torn both his quads getting into the ring. Oh my so, god. So now he's chewing out these two referees while he's just sat on the mat with his hands on his hips and his legs stretched out so he's like sitting upright. All the while, nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows that Vince McMahon has torn both his quads. So it's like, why is the chairman of the company just sitting here while two referees are shouting <laughs> down to him? <laughs> Meanwhile, you've got, you've got two of the biggest stars in the company just sort of looking around going, well, this is happening. And <laughs> then eventually they restart the match and it finishes in about 30 seconds to a minute when Dave Besey actually throws John Cena out like he was supposed to. But, yeah, it gave us one of wow, the funniest moments in wrestling history, which is everything going wrong and then a horrible man getting injured. I'm going to have to watch
1: <laughs> that. that. I mean, that, there's what so much going on there. I feel like someone should, like, paint
0: that as a scene because there's just so much <laughs> happening there. <laughs> um, Andy, how are the album charts looking right now? Yeah, well
1: it's a short period of time uh, that we're covering this week, so only a few to talk about, but two out of three of them are new. Um, First of all, we've got Push the Button by the Chemical Brothers, not the Sugar Babes. We've got the Chemical Brothers Hmm. from Push the Button, who went platinum, single platinum with that album, and was at the top for one week but a week later it was toppled by an album that feels like it was substantially bigger than this, but it only went one times platinum, which is Tourist by Athlete, which is that album that your dad had, because it was the <laughs> law that every dad had to own a copy of Tourist by Athlete. Um, it's, um, it's not for me, I'll say that. Um, no. But uh, it, it was for a lot of people. And then um, at the end of the period that we're covering this week, Keane returned to number one again with Hopes and Fears, which was one of last year's highest-selling albums, went nine times platinum. That returned to number one because Keen are very much still at their height, still releasing sing- uh, singles off their album at this point. So yeah, it's a big old month for your kind of indie dad genre
0: at this time, yeah. Okay. Lizzie, how are things in the States?
2: Well, I've got nothing to report for singles this week because Let Me Love You by Mario stays at number one until the first week of March, so I will move on to albums. First up this week, we have the documentary by The Game, which debuted at number one with over half a million sales in its first week. It spent two non-consecutive weeks at number one in the US, but peaked at number seven in the UK during this same time. And finally this week, we have Kenny Chesney and his album, Be As You Are, Songs from an Old Blue Chair, (laughs) which got to number one for one week in the US, but didn't even chart over here, as is often the case with American country music. And that's it for me.
0: What an incredibly pretentious album title that is.
1: Songs from the
0: Old Blue Chair. Come on. Saying there's only <laughs> one genre that could possibly belong to, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, right, well, thank you both very much, and we are going to press on to the first song of this week's episode, and it is this. My goodies, my goodies, my goodies.
3: I got a sick reputation for handling brawls All I need is me a few seconds or more, seconds and it's more. Rap. a wrap. Tell the lady to bring my lap, and they ain't coming back, so you can put a car put right there. Car I'm right the there. truth, and ain't got nothing to prove. And you can ask anybody, because they seem to do it. Barricades, I run right through them. i used to them. Throw all the dirt you want, no <laughs> use. Still won't have a pent-up in a fabulous room. Bone her back, picking out a basket of fruit. I love you, boy. Yeah, freaky freaking pretty. love you, too. <laughs> you know how I do
0: Okay, this is Goodies by Sierra, featuring P.T. Pablo. Released as the lead single from her debut studio album, titled Goodies, Goodies is the first single to be released by Sierra in the UK, and so of course it's her first number one. However, it is her only number one single to date. Goodies reached number one during its third week on the chart, knocking Elvis Presley off the top spot. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 21,000 copies, beating competition from Galvanized by the Chemical Brothers, which got to number three, Flyers by Athlete, which got to number four, Tumble and Fall by Feeder, which got to number 5, Breathe In by Lucy Silvers, which got to number 6, and Take Me Away by Stonebridge, which got to number 9. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Goodies dropped two places to number 3. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 14 weeks. The song is currently officially certified silver in the UK as of 2023. Andy, take us away for this week. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not the type of song that was made for me
1: because I have expressed in the past my dislike of this sort of thing. Um, but I, I, you know, I had to give this a little while to rumble around in my head and to think about it. And I'm definitely more keen on it now than I was a few weeks ago. Um, the thing about this is that when I read the name on the page of this song, I was like, mm, don't know that one, never heard of that. Um, and I never would have identified it from the title or the artist because this is one of those songs that when I listen to it I'm like oh it's that, oh yeah but I never ever would have known what it was called or who sang it Um, and I think that partly is wrapped up in the fact that, in retrospect, this sounds a little bit anonymous. This kind of sounds like a lot of artists of this era could have done this. The name that immediately came to mind was Pussycat Dolls, who of course, their big break is right round the corner, um, and it sounded exactly like something that they would have done in 2005, and that uh, many other artists were kind of taken run with right up until about 2008. Um, and it's really not something I'm a huge fan of the kind of I'm going to take Lizzie's job for this week of inventing a genre name the kind of uh, I don't know sexy sexy hand clap shuffle sort of thing um (laughs) Where it's just like, you know, I'm going to speak in a breathy voice and use some strained metaphor that refers to my genitals. And it's all going to be about, oh, shall we go at it or shall we not? Let's <laughs> decide over the course of three sexual minutes. You know, it's it's um, that sort of thing that it just doesn't really appeal to me. And um, there is kind of a straight line from this through don't you through like glamorous and that sort of thing all the way through to like low. Um, which I absolutely hate. Um, So I think I just kind of listened to this and was like, oh no, not this sort of thing. And I I don't like that whistle at the top, which I know is a bit controversial because that's kind of the whole thing of the song, but I really don't like that whistle sound. But, 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 and it's a big but. I think this one has really benefited from context- that although, yes, it does sound a lot like Pussycat Dolls and there will be a lot of stuff like this in the future, this is the first of this kind of thing that we've really had. And I think that deserves credit, that um, in the context of where we are right now, this is very fresh. This is something very different. And I can see why this would have really taken off at the time, that it sort of is a natural evolution from early noughties R&B, which was like Maboo, into something a bit more racy, a bit more against the grain um, and so I kind of appreciate what this is doing here and think it would have been very exciting to hear at the time it's not my genre for sure and I still don't really like this sort of thing but I absolutely do appreciate what this is doing and if nothing else it's an original song we've got an original song at number one <laughs> for the first time since like October 2004 or something like that um, so I was just made up to have something to really chew over Um, so yes, I, I did like this actually. And when I went into it, I was expecting to give this, you know, a pretty emphatic thumbs down, but no, I've changed my mind on it and I would give this a thumbs up, um, purely for what it's bringing to the show, which is going to very, very much dominate the airwaves over the next couple of years. So yeah, an interesting one to cover, I thought. Yeah.
0: Okay. Lizzie, how about you?
2: Yeah. Like you, Andy, I'm just relieved to be... Uh, Like, encountering music from this year again? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And even this is technically from 2004, but again, it just, it sounds like the moment. If I think the music of 2004, 2005, it's this sort of thing I think of. So, yeah, nice to be back in this zone. Um, I think, because I I mentioned when we covered Yeah that there was a response song to this that we were going to cover, and it's this one ah I see okay this is the counterpart to yeah from the woman's perspective but it's kind of it's different in that it's sort of trying saying you know well actually I'm not like that I'm not one of these easy girls that you sing about I'm sort of my own independent woman and so yeah I appreciate it in that regard as well um I think the production is very similar but I think that's okay. It's kind of Little John's style. It's what you expect from him. And it. I think it works here. I think Sierra's got a really good voice. Um, again, like I say, I like the message of the song. I think the one thing that really lets it down is P.T. Pablo. Mm. Like, I said with Yeah that Ludacris was one of the best things about the song and that he kind of elevated it above just okay. Whereas this one kind of has the opposite problem in that PC Pablo's flow is kind of anonymous and almost a bit skeevy in parts. Like, you know, I got a sick reputation for handling broads and yeah, was like so damn hot, but so young. It's like, Ugh. And, dear. yeah. And I think his flow is just kind of mumbly and not really there. I feel like if you had a better rapper on this it might have elevated it to something that I'd put in the vault. I think it maybe just misses out on that benchmark, but I remember at the time like it was kind of accepted that Sierra was the next big star. Like yeah. she was going to be on sort of a Beyoncé level and she never quite got to that, but you listen to this and I think it's fairly easy to see why that was expected of her. You're working with Arguably the biggest producer in the world at the minute. Yeah, there's
0: Maybe. Sean Garrett, right?
2: Yeah, like Sean Garrett, Little John, as I mentioned. Um, yeah, and you're in Crunk as well, which is huge at this time. And, yeah, it's pretty easy to see why she might have taken off and being like, the next big star. And she does have some other hits, for sure, but don't think it ever quite got back to this level which is a shame but at least we do have this to talk about and yeah i think i think this is i do think this is really good but if only it didn't have the rap bit in it which i feel awful for saying but yeah it just needed a a better rapper to cover this and like it sort of lets down what i think is an otherwise really good song but yeah, on the on the whole, I'm thumbs up on it.
1: Can I ask Lizzie just because I'm interested as someone who seems to be more naturally, you know, interested in this kind of track? Mm. Is it like I mean, do you share what I said about how this kind of has become a bit sort of retrospectively cliched? That the, you know, there's a lot of stuff that comes after that sounds like this. Am, am I being unfair, or what, what
2: do you think? Um, I think you're right in terms of just the overall sound in general. I think. I I do kind of get what you're saying though. That then again we had milkshake the year before this. Yeah, I was thinking so about I think milkshake. it's on the way.
0: Kind of with the the metaphors thing, kind of carrying it through. Um, this uh, Sean Garrett ends up being responsible. Andy, you mentioned in the Pussycat Dolls. Uh, Sean Garrett works with them for Buttons, which again uses a so uh, a Buttons like a button as like a a metaphor or like a gateway towards sexual content for three and a half to four minutes um mm. and yeah i also milkshake kind of came to mind um from recent uh, from recent times in the charts and also the one that kind of does away with metaphor entirely which was my neck my back um <laughs> yeah which, well, of
2: course yeah yeah
0: no metaphors to be had there uh and that particular song um for goodies uh because uh, I think this does live or die based on whether you like that whistly siren thing. Yeah. yeah. And if you enjoy it or if you can tune it out, then this probably works pretty well for you. But if not, yikes, you're not in for a good time, like at all, mm-hmm. because that's <laughs> it's the only thing it does. <laughs> um, thankfully, I sort of do, because it reminds me a lot of like G Funk Lowrider stuff from the 90s mixed in with a bit of Naughty's crunk, it means it pushes that button. Uh, within me, I think that beyond that, it's this is pretty stylish and suave anyway. Like, I don't think Sierra's got like the best range, but she sounds at home here. Um, but like you, Lizzie, I wish that Pete Pablo, I wish that he was Buster Rhymes in this, or Ludicrous, or Ludicrous, just someone who does that kind of rapid fire flow, but with better initiation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think he does a decent job, P.E. Pablo, and their performances go well together. Um, and I can it's easy to see why this was such a huge hit in America, because they were, like, you know, like, we've, like you two have covered, they were eating this stuff up around this time, and it was really popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but this just doesn't get me that excited overall. I think I start getting a bit bored of the goodies, cookies metaphor. After a while, the whole they stay in the jar thing like i'm sympathetic to and interested in the messages and the meanings behind the song but as a total package i'm a bit less uh convinced by it uh when it comes to songs like this from sierra i prefer the was it the follow-up one two step yeah yeah. when you want it the beat on that is insane proper like you know like missy elliott at the peak of her powers sort of thing uh, it's a real shame we don't get to talk about that. That gets to like number three, I think, in the charts, maybe. But anyway, this is good. Um, it's a good like breakout single. Um, I don't love it though. Uh, I think like you, Lizzie, I'm a bit, you know, thumbs up, but not too enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know what I mean. So, anything more to say about Goodies by Sierra?
1: No, no. Just no. any? No.
0: Uh, is there any uh, any
1: advance on? Um Sexy hand clap shuffle. I will give you a chance, Lizzie, because you're always better at these oh, things.
2: <laughs> um, no, I'm going to have to leave that one to the listeners, I think. Jeremy's sex mix, maybe?
0: <laughs> <laughs> we will move swiftly on, and the second song up this week is this. Ooh.
3: It's
1: now
2: or never Come hold me tight Kiss me, my darling Be mine tonight Tomorrow will be too late It's now or never
0: This is It's Now or Never by Elvis Presley, released as a standalone single. It's Now or Never is Elvis Presley's 27th single to be reissued in the UK, his 138th single to be released overall in the UK, and his 21st single to reach number one. However, it is his last number one. The song is a re-release of the single which originally reached number one back in 1960. It's Now or Never went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Sierra off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold a total of 22,000 copies, beating competition from Only You by Ashanti, which got to number 2, Grief Never Grows Old by One World Project, which got to number 4, Shine by Love Freaks, which got to number 6, Do This Do That by Free Faller, which got to number 8, Hey Now by Exhibit, which got to number 9, and Penny and Me by Hanson, which got to number 10. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, it's now or never dropped 13 places to number 14. By the time the reissue was done on the charts, the song had been inside the top 100 for a total of 23 weeks. The song is currently officially certified two times platinum, so double platinum in the UK, as of 2023. Lizzie, Elvis, is back. He refuses to leave the building as you uh, so hilariously put on the uh, link for the uh, last episode. What do we make of It's Now or Never?
2: Yeah, we'll get him out eventually. Yeah. Like, at him with a broom. (laughs) Um, We had a bit of a chat last week about the oldest song we've covered on the podcast, and we hazarded a guess that it might have been Jailhouse Rock. Then, as the week went on, we did a bit more digging, and it turns out that this might comfortably be the oldest song we've ever covered, given that this one is a rewrite of an old Neapolitan song composed in 1898. Oh, solo Wow. Oh, solo yeah. It was originally rewritten in English in 1949, when American singer Tony Martin recorded There's No Tomorrow, And then about 10 years later, Elvis heard the recording while he was stationed in Germany with the U.S. Army, and he recorded a private version of the song. So when he was discharged, the songwriters Aaron Schroeder and Wally Gold wrote a new version, especially for him. And here we are. So there was about 60 years between the original recording and the Elvis version. And then another 46 years between the Elvis recording and this mm. getting to number one again. Wow. I will say
1: that because this has new lyrics and is written for Elvis, I'm
2: not
1: 100% sure whether I would count it, but it's a fresh out. It's a good mm. contender. It's the oldest yeah. tune. It's the oldest tune, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
2: But yeah um, I, I quite like this one. It has quite a distinct Italian sound to it that's hard to explain without any specific knowledge of Italian music history. um, Maybe that's just because I'm used to it being used as a sort of incidental piece in English-speaking culture and media to denote Italy itself, much like how it was used as a jingle on the Cornetto adverts for (laughs) a couple of years. (laughs) And that's the version that always gets stuck in my head. So it's like... It's now or never, give it to me, delicious ice cream from Italy. Every <laughs> single
1: time that I have played this or sung this in preparation for this episode my husband has been going, I want cornetto, give me cornetto. <laughs> exactly.
2: <laughs> exactly, and that is the power of advertising. <laughs> so Andy, tell us about your new podcast. <laughs> I'm really kidding. Um, as, we've, like, as we've discussed previously, Elvis as a performer was a bit of a shapeshifter. I feel like he could adapt his persona to fit the music he was creating and that in turn led to his broad appeal across generations. Like last week we saw Elvis the Young Rebel and then Elvis the slightly sleazy Lothario and in 2002 even we encountered Elvis the Las Vegas Showman. This time around it's Elvis the Old World European romantic yes yeah Yeah. and like this version leans heavily on that italian origin aspect and even elvis himself seems to put on a bit of an italian affectation in the song like with your smile so tender like i still do (laughs) like the song and i think elvis's voice suits it really well but i did find it slightly difficult to ignore that sense of pastiche that comes with it I suppose you could say the same about Jailhouse Rock, which was Elvis doing his best Chuck Berry impression, but Elvis's performance in that is both more compelling and more historically significant than this one. Like, I can't really imagine a generation of musicians hearing this and dreaming of being a rock and roll star the way I can with Jailhouse Rock, or even One Night, but It's similarly not hard to see why this is such a huge hit. It's an archetypal song performed by an iconic singer. So it's no wonder really that a 100 years can pass and it can still be a hit. Um, So yeah, on the whole, um, I, I do like this. Not as much as Jailhouse Rock or One Night, but I think, yeah, I'd say overall it's a thumbs up.
0: Yeah, I feel kind of similarly to you, Lizzie, in the sense that I kind of put this somewhere between Jailhouse Rock and I got stung. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. basically one night, uh, it kind of a similar position to that. Uh, maybe a little bit less than one night, because I think it lacks the intensity and the speed that I really, really took to with uh jailhouse rock but it's more mm. direct at least than something like i got stung um oh yeah it's weird though because this feels just as steeped in history as jailhouse yeah, rock it feels like its legacy is virtually identical but this doesn't loom over me in the way that jailhouse rock does like no, i find this don't... easier yeah. to i find this easier to confront and to discuss sure um yeah i I think I feel more comfortable saying that like I'm positive towards this, but kind of coolly. So I totally know what you mean about the, it uh, the pastiche Italian flavors uh, at the beginning, just the, uh, the little trill on the acoustic, the uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, just, you know, just in case you were mistaken as to where this song was from. But um, yeah, so I'm happy to just kind of remain reserved about this. Um, I don't really have much more to say about this. I just think it's a pleasantly performed hit that has become a classic. Um, it has a big chart history. Well done to Elvis on all them number ones. Um, I've been reading a little bit more into like what the whole thing was with Elvis in 2005. And it seems that not only were loads of Elvis's singles reissued, but what happened was there was like this big giveaway... And it's not really something that exists anymore, where, like, you used to buy um, the first edition of something, you'd normally see an advert for it off the TV, and then they would send you the first edition with a box, and then in order to pressure you to fill the box, you would then have to buy every other version of... Uh, every other edition of the so of, of the this this long running series like if you bought an encyclopedia they would send you the first volume and then a mm. box so that you would have to f- buy the other five volumes to make it feel like a complete set and it seems they did a similar thing with this where you have the Elvis box set but they release all of the singles week by week so that you can fill up this Elvis box box set of all of his number one singles or all of his singles or something like that. Um, so if you don't, then you're left with a half-empty box. And that's why Elvis spends the rest of the year in the top ten. Uh, this is the last no- his last number one to date. I uh, don't know if he'll ever get any more. I feel like the best opportunity for that to happen would have been around the time of the Elvis film uh, in a way that yeah. the Barbie soundtrack has kind of taken over the charts in the last sort of two months. But yeah... It's. I think I would have been fine buying this at the time if I was an Elvis fan. It's you know I think it's one of his better known ones, isn't it? Double platinum. Uh, so oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Andy, how how about you?
1: Yeah, I I mean I pretty much agree um, with what both of you have said. My, my feelings on it are possibly a little bit more complex, but not in any kind of sense of you know any more developed. It's just I just I'm a little bit less sure about how I feel about it, purely because. This this might not be Vegas, Elvis, but it's definitely a bit of a starting point along that journey. It's definitely a moment where crooning um, a lovesick Elvis, who is now largely appealing to the mums, I would think. Um, oh, yeah. That version of Elvis really kind of starts here. And I don't sort of put this on this song because I actually really do like this. And I think Elvis performs it really, really well. I think his vocals on this, although it's not a particularly wide range, his control on this is exceptional. And so that big leap at the end of my love on Wade, it's just, he executes it really, really well. And so I do like this. And I think he's very, very good as a ballad singer. Um, you know, there's no doubt about that, really. But because this is a little bit of a spark that will like the fuse that goes to, you know, that awful, awful, you know, an American trilogy version of Elvis, um in vegas i just kind of think "Hmm, this is a bit of an original sin for elvis um it's one of those ones that if people list it as their absolute favorite elvis song i'm a little bit like hmm really i wouldn't say they're my absolute favorite you know it's a bit kind of makes me think of it it doesn't trigger me in the way that the wonder of you always does that to me is always a red flag when people start singing the wonder of you i'm like oh that's rubbish it's rubbish. That's just like so cheesy. And that's <laughs> that's a real stepping stone along the way to that sad and lonely Elvis. Um, you know, who who saw through to the end of his life. With this, like I, I do absolutely agree with both of you that like it's just very, very pleasant. It's really well instrumented, that Elvis performs it really well. I think it has a good claim to possibly being the the most successful comeback single ever. Um, that you know he'd had his break to join the army and then he gets this, which is just an absolutely enormous hit. I can't really think of any other big comeback song that has been quite as much of a line in the sand as this was for anyone. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong on that, I just couldn't think of anything when I was considering that. Um, yeah. It's it's very, very successful at what it does. I can totally see why this is so popular, and I do like it. I very much enjoyed revisiting this and particularly enjoyed Elvis's vocals on it um, and appreciating how technically talented he was as a vocalist and as a performer. I really, really agree with what you said, Lizzie, about Elvis being a chameleon in terms of his style. Um, mm. I I think, for me, one of the standouts from his whole discography in terms of... Um, What he does with his vocals is his cover of Fever, um, where it's very, very kind of breathy and very kind of like trembling and sort of, um, I'm trying to think of someone to compare it to, almost like a kind of Kylie Minogue kind of, you know, that kind of vocals like that, you know, it's just very, very like so unlike him and you really almost wouldn't recognise him singing it and I, I don't think he gets enough appreciation for that that he really refines his voice to whatever song he's singing um, Yeah, and that obviously goes wrong when he is told oh basically just do everything a little bit like it's now or never or are you lonesome tonight um, and that that's a shame when that happens and so I kind of like I say look at this as kind of the original scene along that journey but it is pretty good I definitely do enjoy this and um, It might be my favourite song of the week, to be honest. Um, It's 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 a bit of a
0: tie, but yeah, no, yeah, big thumbs up on this one, pretty much. Yeah. Mm, Yeah, it's interesting that you mention that you know this this kind of period of Elvis's career because I I mean it wasn't released as a proper single until '65, but I think this is around the time that he does crying in the chapel, and he also does. he does do well, Your I, Lonesome I, Tonight, actually. Yeah, are like Lonesome Tonight well. is also a really yeah. old song, isn't it, as well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, there's a few um, standards and covers creeping in to uh, to Elvis's output.
1: Some of them he does really, really well, to be fair. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, I hate all his attempts at the old standards. You know, some of them he really does do very well. It's just when he gets to his later life and he you know there's live recordings of him doing my way and stuff like that and it's just oh come on this is not you this is not it's not what you're here for you know but i mean there's other covers he does of songs that are not his and very old like in the ghetto and stuff like that that it's like actually he does a good take on those songs you know he's he does have that ability to Try something different and make it work for him, and I don't want to make it sound like you know, oh, I just hate everything past 1958 because that's not true at all. So it's a very gradual decline, um and this is just a little bit of a pointer along that journey. I
2: think, yeah, I I totally agree, Andy, that like it is, he does sort of get into a bit of a rut with those old standards, particularly later on in his career, but. You still get glimpses of, like, that old energy on, like, his last single, Way Down. So I think yeah. he was still capable of it, but he was just... He clearly got very comfortable in that that softer realm. Yeah, and
1: there's some stuff that mm. you, you listen to and you could be forgiven for thinking it's early Elvis when it's actually mid or late Elvis. I was always really surprised yeah, yeah. when... Because I really like You're the Devil in Disguise, and I was really surprised to find out that that was, like, 64, 65. Of course. When I definitely would have put that in the 50s. So he was definitely still capable of that, right up until the end, really. But just... People just weren't interested anymore. And he was put in a box in terms of his uh, style and what he does. He was put in that white suit forevermore.
0: So, yeah.
2: Yeah,
0: I'm curious, Andy, because this is probably the last time that we'll get to discuss Elvis, uh, like, properly... Because it comes very late in his career, but it's a song I've always really enjoyed, and so I'm curious about what how you feel about it. Um "Suspicious Minds," um, not a fan, but well,
1: I think that there is the bones of a good song in there, and it it could be quite a nice ballad that's sort of in the vein of something like "Can't Take My Eyes Off You," you know, where yeah. it has that kind of you know people can enjoy this at a family party kind of thing. My issues with that are not really to do with Elvis. I'd like I think it's so much too long that it's farcical um, I think it's it's really overblown and overproduced but I actually like it, it's, it's potentially okay Suspicious Minds I don't think it's representative of him at all and I don't like no. how it always seems to be like track one on Elvis Greatest Hits because it's really not very representative of him but it's alright yeah
0: alright then so on to our third and final song this week and it is this <laughs>
3: Even though know I hold the weight of the whole shoulders, I ain't never supposed to show it My crew ain't supposed to know it Even if it means going toe-to-toe with the know It don't matter, I never drag them in battles that I can handle, unless I absolutely have to, I'm supposed to set an example I need to be the leader, my crew looks for me to guide them, some shit ever just pop off, I'm supposed to be beside him. That job said I tried to squash it It was too late to stop it, there's a certain line you just don't cross and he crossed it I heard him say Haley's name on the song and I just lost it, it was crazy, this shit went wavy on some Jay-Z and Nas shit And even though the battle was won, I feel like we lost it, I spent so much energy on it, honestly I'm exhausted, and I'm so caught in it, I almost feel I'm the one who caused it, this ain't what I'm in hip-hop for, it's not why i got gotten it, that was never my object for someone to get killed, why would I want to destroy something I helped build, it wasn't my intentions, my intentions were good, I went through my whole career without ever mentioning it, Never just out of respect, but not running my mouth and talking about something that I knew nothing about. Frustrate told me stay out, this just wasn't my beef, so I did. I just fell back, watched and gritted my teeth while he's all over TV. Now I'm talking to a man who literally saved my life like, fuck it, I understand. This is business, and this shit just isn't none of my business. But still knowing this shit could pop off at any minute.
0: This is Like Toy Soldiers by Eminem. Released as the third single from his fourth studio album, titled Encore, Like Toy Soldiers is Eminem's 16th single overall to be released in the UK and his sixth to reach number one, and it's not the last time that we'll be discussing Eminem on this podcast. Like Toy Soldiers went straight in at number one as a brand new entry, knocking Elvis Presley off the top of the charts. It stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 30,000 copies, beating competition from, we've just talked about it, Are You Lonesome Tonight by Elvis Presley, which got to number two. Almost Here by Brian McFadden and Delta Goodrum, which got to number three. So Here We Are, Double A Side with Positive Tension by Block Party, which got to number five. And I Just Wanna Live by Good Charlotte, which got to (laughs) number nine. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Like Toy Soldiers dropped two places to number three. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the Top 100 for 15 weeks. The song is currently officially certified platinum in the UK as of 2023. So, Andy, are you finished off with Elvis? You can start with Eminem. How do you feel? Thank you.
1: Well, um, I feel like I'm going to slightly break your heart a little bit here, Rob, because I, I know that, you know, not to spoil your thoughts, I'm, I know this isn't one of your absolute favourites of m but I suspect that you do like it quite a lot. And um, in the way that I've grown to appreciate goodies over the last few weeks, every time I've listened to this, my score for this has gone down and down and down. Um, partly because I've been listening to the original Toy Soldiers, Um, And I've realised that everything I like about Like Toy Soldiers comes from the original song, Toy Soldiers. Um, It's just better in every way, unfortunately for me. Um, I think this song really relies really heavily on a very, very good sample, um, which is very effective, very evocative, really has that kind of... Um, 80s malaise style to it, which I absolutely love. I love songs like that, like The Way It Is and Everybody Wants to Rule the World and stuff like that. I love that kind of solemn synth pop sort of thing from the late 80s and the original, Bamatika, really has that in absolute spades and so it's a great sample to hear here. But Eminem's part of it, it just doesn't really interest me at all. Like, I get that the issues that are being raised here are ones that are very close to Eminem's heart, and he is putting himself on the line and exposing his real feelings about the world he lives in now. Um, And I appreciate that, but I just... I mean, I'm not the audience for this at all, and I'm kind of struggling to relate. I think it's, it's just a very, very niche topic that he's getting into, and it's one that, although I'm not saying, oh, life is easy for rich people or anything like that, it is kind of hard... Not to think, well, it's kind of hard to feel sad about the things that you're feeling, Eminem, because you're one of the most rich and famous people in the world and everybody loves you. Um, so it's just a little bit indulgent for me and I kind of find it a bit hard to relate to. But that's not to say that I'm not, like, intrigued ...by um, his regret at the way things have got in the rap scene. It's just really not something I know much about. It's not something I'm particularly engaged in as a listener... ...because it's just not really my world. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. There's no reason why this needs to be almost touching five minutes long. Um, I get that that's quite brutal... But we've heard a lot of Eminem on this podcast. You know, we've had some really good songs from him, really, really good songs from him, and one that's not so good. But he set a high bar, and I think he's just kind of running out of things to say a little bit here. And it kind of becomes, you know, a bit of a cliche um, as the years go by to have a very, very good sample that acts as a chorus, and then you do your bit in between, and you rely on that sample as a bedrock. Eminem's kind of better than that, and he shouldn't need to do that, Um, but he does here, and so I think if you were to lose that sample and replace it with something less effective, this song would just drop through the floor, and for that I have to kind of give it a little bit of punishment. It's not the worst thing in the world, but it's a bit of a chore to get through, to be honest, and I'm just always waiting for another chorus so, yeah, sadly, it's a little bit of a thumbs down for me. And I'm, I'm really only being so harsh because he is capable of so much better and we've had so much better from him. But I just think this misses the mark for me, to be honest, and um, rides by on the glories of a different
0: song. Yeah. I'm not that upset, I promise. Uh, Lizzie, how are you <laughs> feeling uh, about life <laughs> Toy soldiers?
2: Well, in fairness, Andy, the last time Eminem did a chorus, we got Just Lose It.
3: Oh, yeah, there is that, yeah. <laughs>
2: So, yeah, I'm kind of thankful that we didn't get that, at least. Um, I am warmer on this than you. I think you have a lot of good points, particularly about Eminem's verses, and that there's maybe a little bit lacking in terms of content, but I think I come at it from a slightly different angle. I do agree with you that the sample is absolutely killer, and it kind of out-Kanye's Kanye at his own game. Hmm. But... um, Yeah, I think that's kind of the obvious point. In terms of the lyrics, though, Rob, you mentioned something in our little group chat that kind of resonated with me in that I think it is quite an admirable statement that he's making in terms of not wanting to be a part of all this violence in hip-hop. And as I mentioned Mm. in the last episode, um, one of Tupac's posthumous albums from around this time was produced by Eminem. So... Yeah. I'm sure this stuff was probably on his mind and I'm sure Tupac was somebody he probably idolised and maybe Biggie too, for all I know. Mm. Um But the problem is it just kind of gets lost. I think that's a message that I absolutely sympathise with, but it's just, it gets lost in this stuff about 50 Cent and Jar Rule, which, again, it's like I didn't even really know about and I'm not particularly compelled by it, it just sounds like it sounds a bit like Jar Rule said something that was kind of out of line and at that point it's one of those where you tell a kid, like, just fucking ignore him. <laughs> He's clearly just doing it to get your dander up. Like, it's okay to not rise to that. But instead Eminem's like written a whole song about it and it is a bit sort of I'm I'm abs- I'm not triggered. I'm definitely not upset by this. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, come on, dude. I, again, I feel bad saying this because I do agree with the the whole sentiment of the song that people in hip hop have died unnecessarily young and still do because of petty beef that turns violent when it really sh- doesn't have to. But yeah, I think it just gets lost in in Eminem's kind of lyrics. I think with a bit more focus and, a, you know, a bit, of, a bit of tightening. Like, I agree with you, Andy, this doesn't need to be five minutes long. Could have really whittled this down. You could have made quite an impactful statement. I'm sure he has to a lot of people because, hey, he's still one of the biggest artists in the world and a lot of people love this song. But to me, listening to it now with modern ears, as someone who used to really love Eminem as well, it's just... Like, I don't know, it doesn't do enough to stand out other than having, like, an undeniable hook and quite, um, yeah, like I say, a, a message that I broadly agree with, just kind of lost in this mire of beef that I don't really understand. So, yeah, yeah, a bit, a bit of a shame. I think I'm I'm giving it, like, a mild thumbs up. I, it's definitely grown on me as the weeks gone on, but I'm still not enough to put it up there with you, Rob.
1: I really appreciate what you said there, Lizzie. But just I, I think you really articulated like much better what I was trying to say, really, which is that it's like I do actually really appreciate the issues that are being raised here. That yeah, a lot of rappers in the '90s and early '90s, you know, did die young needlessly. That that was that it was a problem. I think the issue for me is that. It doesn't feel authentic for Eminem to be the one saying this, because he, at all right, at the at first, like in the late nineties, he was kind of new and dangerous. But at this point, he is like the mainstream acceptable face of rap music. Who you know is one of the only rappers in the world who your parents might be comfortable with you having a poster of them on the wall. Like, it just doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel like he could ever have been one of the people who died young due to violence. I just don't feel like there was any chance of that, because he's Eminem. He's sort of family-friendly, and it just doesn't feel authentic to me. And I think that's kind of the issue there, um, that... it feels like he's saying this from a distance rather than as someone who is really, like, involved in all of this. And maybe that's not true. Maybe that's not true, but that's how it comes across. And I'm happy to be corrected on it, but yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I saw a stat this week that said that on Encore, Eminem devoted about 40% of his bars to dissing people. And this is Encore's The Album where we kind of... It's the the shark jump moment. But yeah, he's Mm. kind of... He's someone that's like even around this time known for sort of taking aim at people and well maybe that's your point Andy that he is someone that specifically targets other people and now here he is like can't we all just get along yeah
1: <laughs> that is my point he's dishing it out from a distance and it's like yeah, no, yeah I don't really feel like he's involved in this culture I feel like he just is relentlessly commenting on it and I don't think it's mm-hmm. a very good look
2: yeah fair enough Hmm.
0: I thought, for me, this was going to turn into one of my longer essay-type uh, discussions, because I feel like that happens a lot with me when we discuss uh, Eminem. But I actually have comparatively little to say about this compared to like the-, the discussions that we had about Stan, or even like Just Lose It, or Lose Yourself. But I think that this is the best track on Encore by like a fair distance from the majority of that record. Um... i think the Martika sample like you andy and lizzie as well i just think that it is used expertly and it gives a lot of life and emotion to the record and it feels suitable Mm. for the subject matter which is eminem now recognizing that he's a bit of an elder statesman in hip-hop and he's realizing the futility of the anger and the feuding that surrounds so much of the music um it's a wise subject to pick this idea of playground games turning dangerous you know, it's the same kind of, like, petty squabbling that kids would do, but now there's guns involved, and that's how people get killed. It's weird to think that we're only, what, nine years on and eight years on, respectively, from the deaths of Biggie and Tupac at this point. Um, like, it, even in 2005, it kind of felt a bit like ancient history, because, obviously, Ghetto Gospel coming up later this year, a Nasty Girl coming up Mm. next year obviously there's this idea that like they're still kind of they feel sort of current but in a way that's like oh yeah they're dead and i don't and obviously like because being the age i was i don't remember them dying and so because i have no frame of reference or memory of them being killed it's just it may as all it may as well have all been much further ago uh in the past um Like you two, though, I think where this falls slightly short for me is that he gets too into the nitty gritty and the specifics of his various feuds that he wishes that he didn't have. I don't mind it in the first verse, but then I think in the second verse, I just wish it was broader and had more in common with the music video, which is more to do with, like, isn't, you know, the, the, the sort of like the broad subject of anger and violence, isn't that a problem? You know, but instead, like, the second verse goes into all these, like, really nitty-gritty things about, like, how he has a beef with the editor of The Source. And yeah. Uh, and yeah. just, like, I don't, I don't know if I, it's not like I don't care, but it's just like, is this the most appropriate thing that you could be discussing right now? Because the music yeah. video is all, like, really immediate. Like, it's Eminem in hospital with blood all over him watching his friend die on the table from being shot. And, like, there's a great image in the music video, and I remember it, like, really clearly and really vividly, but then you listen to the lyrics of the song and you forget that it's not the broad, like, stop the violence. Why, oh, you know, it's not, it's not like that. It's more like I, I spoke to 50 Cent and I told him not to have an argument with Ja Rule, but then Ja Rule mentioned my daughter and I went, you know what, <laughs> 50, you have my blessing to go and have, have a go at Ja Rule. He started it. This is, exa- this is exactly what I mean about running out of things to say. It's like,
1: he, he's bringing the most minor little tiffs to the table that don't need to be in the public domain at all. And I, I just feel like it's because he's just going through his catalogue of, well, what could I talk about? Like, and he's having yeah. to mine the well very, very deep at this point.
0: Yeah, I think maybe, I don't know, he may have been concerned that he was getting too preachy. Um, but like, it doesn't. It just. I'm not asked about the arguments that he's having in the second verse. Really. Um, still though, I think M is engaging enough as an MC at this point to hold my attention. Um, but even as someone like me who likes to collect and research lots of info about hip hop and the context for certain albums and singles and things like that, running through various beefs, I'm not sure it's the best use of his time. But I do think that this, this I is, think this is the crucial thing for me, that at least in mainstream music and pop music, gangster rap as a big, as the dominant commercial force in hip-hop is kind of waning at this point and is kind of fading out. And there's a moment mm-hmm. in 2007 where gangster rap as the dominant commercial force definitively is defeated by... Uh, the the kind of the new school that came in at the start of the early 2000s. And mm-hmm. songs like this, songs like, like Toy Soldiers, I think are part of the general movement away, where the music and the artistry can't really be questioned, but the figures and the people pumping the money into gangster rap can. Where I think yeah. that it's fair enough, I think, that, I mean, there's so much gangster rap that I absolutely adore, because... The whole thing with me and hip hop is like, how can I, uh, you know, a suburban white guy from the northwest of England, how can I relate to gangster rappers and the people who live that life? And the way that I always, you know, the, kind of rationalize it to myself is that I listen and enjoy, listen to and enjoy so much gangster rap because it teaches me about experiences that I have never experienced and never gone through it's about learning somebody else's truth for me but it got to the point in the mid-2000s where there were there were lots of people in the industry who were millionaires and still trying to peddle this kind of romanticized image of gangster rap it wasn't really from hmm. the streets anymore it was from the office on the 10th floor and it was all about, like, trying to remember what it used to be like. And it all felt a bit... It was starting to feel a little bit false by this point. When you have groups like... Just the the just the groups like No Limit Records and... I don't know, it's all... It has it, become something else entirely, I think, by the time that No Limit Records and G-Unit are, like, the dominant force... In hip hop, and I think you know, even people like Shug Knight, um, still being around, like he kind of gets name dropped in this because M actually, you know, he mutes the word because he goes, I went through my whole career without ever mentioning, and then he, but it's Shug Knight who he's referencing, and in later live performances, since Shug Knight has finally, finally been put in prison, um, he started mentioning Shug on stage at that point. In the song, um, so like I see value in this. Um, it's I I just I said when we covered Just Lose It that I wish Encore had been more like this, where Eminem is growing up a little bit and he's reflective and he's analysing hmm. his role in the scene as a role model, uh, and I think this gives me plenty of that. Um, plus, I think. Time, unfortunately, has added a lot of weight to this, especially to to the video, because uh, proof a member of D12 was shot dead 18 months after this song came out. Um, And you could clearly see that it was what was on M's mind and the fact that he was running through... I think he does get too lost in the finer details. And if you're not up on the latest stories with Eminem... I mean, even now with me, I'm like, I agree with you two that like, I wish that this was three shorter verses instead of two longer ones, because when the verses keep rolling past the point where you think he's gonna drop the chorus in now, he's gonna drop the chorus in now. the the longer it goes on, the you know the more I think like, I think this could be sharper than it is. Um, but it's one of those ones where I think the sample is so good. And I really like the first verse and the that you know the, the way that the Martika sample is introduced as the chorus. Um, the other thing as well, which is it's not necessarily uh, a criticism of this song, but I think unfortunately this unfortunately sets the template for like the rest of Eminem's career, in the sense that like oh sad piano drum beat and then he just kind of hectors people for four and a half minutes like. That's like the blueprint for almost everything that Eminem does, through like recovery to <laughs> to like his most recent stuff, like music to be murdered by, like recovery and kamikaze and revival and oh and Marshall Mathers LP two and it, oh Jesus, there are so many just dull as dishwater cuts on those records, um, but I think. I am going to sneak this into the vault. Just about. Only just. Um, But it is the last song that I will vault for Eminem for a long, 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 long time. If at all. Mm. Because, God, we're going to have a lot to discuss about Eminem uh, in the future. Uh, So, yeah, this isn't on the level of Lose Yourself or Real Slim Shady or Definitely Not Stan um but yeah i i am a fan of it i think that it has a lot of value just gonna check whether goodies by sierra is going in the pie hole or the vault for anyone in particular it's not going in either for me no me neither no
2: no me neither
0: cool uh it's now or never by elvis presley
2: nope it's now or neither <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh yeah not not for me either um i've already said i'm gonna just slide like toy soldiers in under the door of the vault um but it doesn't sound like you two are gonna put it anywhere in particular Andy,
2: piehole.
0: No. pie hole no oh no no it's not. not that bad No,
2: not quite for me no
0: okay then that is it for this week's episode thank you very much for listening when we come back We'll be continuing our journey through 2005, still slow at this point, uh, unfortunately. But we will see you soon. Thanks for listening. So bye for now. Bye-bye.